Hello and welcome to the podcast for the December 2011 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined once again by the editor of TLID, John McConnell, to discuss some of the issue highlights. Welcome John. Let's start with a phase three study. It concerns HIV, looking at specifically whether an antiretroviral, obviously used I guess in regimen with, with other antiretrovirals, should be taken once or twice daily, so presumably this is looking at compliance, is it? The issue here is, is a little bit more than compliance, so what we're really looking at is whether you can take this drug called raltegravir once or twice a day. At the moment it's given twice a day and it's given in combination with uh, tenofovir and emtricotabine, which is together, is known together as is Truvada, so I think that's the name that most people will know it by. So there is some indication that you only, that, uh, you only need to give uh, raltegravir perhaps once a day. Now raltegravir is a type of drug known as a an integrase inhibitor. So what these authors have looked at is to see if they can basically just make the whole dosing regimen much more simple by patients only having to take the drug once a day. Um, so they've done a very pretty straightforward randomized trial, looked at a comparison between once daily and twice daily dosing of raltegravir, looked at viral endpoints, they've done what's called a non-inferiority trial. So they're basically they're looking to see whether the two dosing regimens are essentially comparable rather than the trying to see whether there is a striking difference between one and the other. And what they found, to summarise, is that actually the once-daily dosing doesn't look to be as good as the twice-daily dosing. So uh, they're saying that uh, actually as things stand, we should stick with the current uh, recommendation, which is for twice-daily dosing with raltegravir. Thanks very much, John. Good summary there. And uh, there is a comment alongside this article. Anything you want to mention from that? Well, actually, the, the comment really sort of goes off into what, what might be something of a, an arcane area for some of us, which is the pharmacodynamics um, of the use of these antiviral drugs. The commentator has some fantastic thoughts on why the early indications that once daily dosing might be effective have not turned out to be the case in this trial. But that uh, isn't an explanation which is easy to summarise. So I suggest you, you point your browsers towards that comment and read it. Next, John, let's talk about flu vaccines. We always seem to be talking about flu vaccines at the moment, but actually here we have two phase one studies, and this concerns something called DNA priming. So why don't you start off by telling me and our listeners what the concept is here? Well, this is a way of seeing if we can improve the immune response to flu vaccines by first of all giving people a prime vaccination with what's called a DNA vaccine. The idea being that you can, if you like, you can prime people to respond to all types of flu vaccine if you give them a, if you give them a prime dose. So what we're looking at here is ways of sparing uh, the quantity of flu vaccine that needs to be given, particularly in, in a pandemic situation. But also we're we're looking for a for, for just for a better vaccine as that um, meta-analysis which the Lancet Infectious Diseases published online uh, a few weeks ago showed uh, the current vaccines are only about 60% effective so we're looking for ways to develop more uh, better vaccines particularly in the in the very young and, and the elderly population. So briefly summarise the methods and key results here. So what they did is they gave this um, DNA vaccine, which is actually been developed by against the bird flu uh, virus, the H5N1. And then they waited for a gap of a minimum of four weeks. And then they gave the recipients of the vaccine, uh, the, the priming vaccine, uh, they then just uh, vaccinated them with the standard uh, monovalent inactivated vaccine. And they looked at the, the immune response uh, and compared with the control group, 
group, there was indeed a, bo- a boosted uh, immune response in those uh, participants. Um, and remember, this is all volunteers. We're not talking about any sort of patients here. We're not talking about people who are ill. So these are volunteers who've um, who enrolled in this study. So the people who had the boosting with the DNA vaccine did indeed have an enhanced immune response against subsequent vaccine with the monovalent vaccine. So in summary, John, an interesting but but very sort of preliminary development in this field and we've got to presumably logically await phase two and beyond research before we can start getting too excited. Uh, We will indeed it could be a while before we we see this in our clinics yet. Thanks John and next let's uh, talk about I think a very interesting study from uh, Senegal in West Africa concerning malaria specifically this is looking at assessing the effect of scale-up measures so in other words prevention i.e. bed nets and some of the artemisinin-based combination therapies. Tell us about this, John, because there's a rather surprising twist in in what they found here, isn't there? Well, this is looking at what happened before and after the institution of uh, malaria control measures in a uh, village in Senegal. So um, they collected data on clinical illness uh, before the introduction of insecticide-treated bed nets and after the introduction of insecticide-treated bed nets. And at the same time, the artemisinin-based combination therapies, ACTs, were introduced into the picture as well. So what the researchers found is that what they looked at was what they called incidence density, so the, the incidence of malaria episodes in the population in this, this one village in Senegal between uh, uh, January of 2007 and the end of 2010. So what happened, basically, is that after the introduction of the long-lasting insecticide-treated bed nets, then the incidence density of malaria dropped to about a tenth of what it had been before the introduction of bed nets. And then, after a period of about two years or so, incidence climbed back up again, almost to the baseline level, uh, where it had been before the introduction of the nets. So we have an interesting observation of a sort of rebound in in malaria after the introduction of a a control programme. Thanks, John. Fascinating. So why did this rebound happen, do you and do the authors think? They don't know for sure. There are possibilities. And one possibility is that because people were no longer being exposed to malaria, then they were catching it, if you like, slightly older, and they were displaying their disease then and not as children. There are some caveats around that, of course, because this whole study only took four years, and it's hard to believe that people will have lost their immunity to malaria in that time. A very interesting effect is that the mosquitoes were developing resistance to the bed nets, to the insecticide in the bed nets. And therefore, the mosquitoes, of course, were, were living uh, and not being killed by the nets. Uh, and they were able, their populations were able to regrow and they were able to start transmitting malaria again. But this is all rather hypothetical. We don't really know the answers to that, the, 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 these these questions. And of course, I think an, imp- an important caveat is because it's a relatively short period of time, four years, we can't exclude a sort of random variation in the prevalence of malaria, which may have been an important contributing factor to the situation that we've that's been observed here so yeah i was going to ask what are the next steps we've got to find the answer to these questions one that you're hypothesizing about now well indeed i I think it's absolutely essential that we don't have a situation where these control measures are introduced and then there is no observation of the effect on mosquito populations and parasite resistance it's very very important that those things continue to be monitored after the introduction of control programs and finally john let's end with a personal view about 
obesity. I didn't think I was going to read about obesity in the Lancet Infectious Diseases, but but according to to somebody out there, uh, there could be some um, very clear infectious causes of obesity, John. So give us a flavour, if you'll pardon the pun, <laughs> of um, what this personal view is about. What the author of this paper is, is proposing, and his name is Nikhil Durunda, and he has been working in this field of infection potentially having a role in human obesity. He's been working in this field for a long time and he's one of the leaders of the field. His work has often been regarded as rather quirky, but now, of course, is re- receiving increasing support from uh, from other areas uh, and from other researchers. And what essentially he's proposing is that certain types of infection, and the one that he's particularly focusing on is adenovirus 36, is that certain types of infection can, in fact, dispose, predispose people to, to obesity. And what he's proposing is various ways that we could uh, research this subject somewhat more deeply, uh, and he does have um, he has quite a bit of evidence to um, to draw on from animal work, uh, particularly in chickens, on how other types of adenoviruses can actually cause chickens to become more obese. And there are other organisms which may have a role as well. And he cites Chlamydia pneumoniae, Helicobacter pylori. The whole picture of how our normal gut flora interacts with us as human beings has become increasingly complicated as we have realised with the uh, use of genomics just how complex our gut flora is. Um, So this is an area where we could see a lot more development and a lot more excitement in the next few years. Now what we can't exclude of course is that perhaps, perhaps, obesity itself predisposes people to become more likely to be infected with these potential organisms. So Duranda does look at ways that we could tease out these two effects in this in this fascinating paper. Excellent. Many thanks, Sean. Indeed, those are some of the highlights from the December 2011 issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases.